hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. This is Cheryl Broderson in studio with Jasmine Allnut. And we are looking at Florence Nightingale because she is a woman worth knowing. Absolutely. And last session, because you might not have remembered because it was so long ago, like mm-hmm. all of last week, <laughs> but we were just talking about how she was born in an upper class home and how the profession of nursing, one, it wasn't a profession, was it? No. It was more of a- Very casual, thrown together. Mm -hmm. And and it wasn't respectable at all. So when Florence from this upper-class family refuses three suitors and chooses (laughs) instead to start studying um, medicine, and again, there are no female doctors at this time, and she's studying medicine and she's looking at statistics, all of these things are Mm -hmm. off-limits to women. Yeah. So it, it's really incredible. But then she has a man that she knows who's in the government. Yes, Sidney Herbert. Sidney Herbert, <laughs> who real recognizes Florence's talents mm. of her organization, her nursing abilities. Yeah. And he asks her if she'll get together a group of women and go and help the English soldiers that are being wounded and actually dying in the Crimean War. Yeah. So she had just arrived in Turkey. Yep. And what happened? What what happened when she got there? So she gets, yeah. So as as you may recall, um, she gets there and she realizes, like, oh my goodness, no wonder Herbert was so um, distressed. Yeah, yeah, and distressed that I come here because the hospital in Skatari was a disaster. Cheryl mentioned this at the end of our last episode, but the the hospital was on a cesspool, like basically the sewage, mm-hmm. and they didn't realize at first that that's where it was, and so they're bringing up water that's tainted to these typhoid. men. The men are dying typhoid, of typhoid, cholera. Yep. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, and that's something that hadn't even really been known. I mean, we think of, I've mentioned before on a podcast, this is kind of random, but there was the Great Stink in London in 1858, a few years after this time. And that was when they finally started to realize, oh, that's where the cholera is coming from. It's from our water coming out of the Thames, which is full of waste. It sounds disgusting, but that's- And is. <laughs> yeah, it really is disgusting. But this is just an unknown thing. People aren't putting the, they're not connecting the dots, which is why right. Florence is going to be so important. And I I had read that more men died of like typhoid fever yes. in the Crimean War than of their injuries. Yes. So it's not their injuries. In fact, it was more dangerous to go to the hospital, they said, than on the battlefield. Yes. That's the how bad it is. The statistic was, yep, a soldier was seven times more likely to die in a hospital than on a battlefield. Seven times. And that's the same thing. Uh, we mentioned the Civil War um, last week, I've done a lot of reading on the Civil War, and it's amazing how many people had ma- minor wounds that would die because they just couldn't get the proper treatment, you know. Proper um, treatment was, and and then lack of hygiene. Yes. Which is something, yeah. this is where Florence yep. Nightingale breaks the mold. Yes. Because she goes in and she begins to insist on hygiene. And you've got to remember, this is Dr. Lister, um, got laughed out of the medical community because he suggested that doctors wash their hands before they deliver babies. Isn't that crazy? And, so- and they realized that his infant mortality and his, that his babies and his mm. mothers were living. And they suddenly realized, oh, it's because 
he washes his hands. And this Mm. is about the time microscopes begin to be invented and they begin to see something that we would call germs germs, and bacteria. And they begin to, but this is all cutting edge for this time. Yeah. To us, this is so like no brainer, but it's not to them. People are just figuring this out. You know, and again, you've got the guys, the men are lying in their waist, so no wonder their wounds are, you know, putrefying and getting infected. There's no, there weren't very many supplies. Um, There's bugs and vermin running around all over the men while they're laying there. It was just so bad. And so Florence and her nurses got to work scrubbing down that hospital. It's like, right, let's just take this, you know, we we can't do this. We need to just... uh, clean this place washing up immediately. The sheets. That was like a Yeah, big. what a phenomenal idea, right? Mm-hmm. Washing the sheets. I mean, getting improved food and nutrition. Mm-hmm. Again, remember, that was something that was kind of new in the Crimean War, was starting to get uh, troop nutrition improved. Um, they even provided a library. I don't. I can't remember where they got the books. They were requisitioning supplies, I think, from the surrounding areas, uh, bringing together books so that the guys would have something to do while they're, you know, in recuperation from their wounds. The nurses would write letters home for the soldiers, you know, just, I don't know, to really minister and serve them practically on every level. And of course, there's the famous uh, image of Florence Nightingale patrolling the hospital every night. And this is where she got the title Lady with the Lamp. She was known as the Lady with the Lamp because she would just go and check on all of the men Which during the night. was never done before. They didn't check on their patients. Right. So the fact that they're coming and they're checking on their patients yes. is, is novel. But again, as you mentioned before, this is the first war to be covered by the press. Mm-hmm. And they're they're reporting back to England. Yeah. And it was actually the press that noticed what a difference Florence was making. Yeah. And so because the press was writing down about this wonderful lady, Florence Nightingale, and all she was doing and her nurses to improve the conditions, it put pressure on uh, the captains and the military leaders of the English military leaders, to allow her to stay and to allow her to do what she wanted. She was very forceful. And she was so forceful and so strong that they really resented her. Yeah. Because she'd come in, she'd make these demands, and I need this and I need that. And she's well-educated. Yes. Yeah. And they're thinking, what's this woman doing, telling us what she needs and what she wants and demanding of us? We're we're involved in a war and we're the men. And because of the pressure from these articles that were coming back to London about what an amazing woman Florence is. So Florence actually became... (laughs) becomes famous Mm -hmm. because of the, what do you call it, the newspaper reports on her during the Crimean War. Absolutely. I mean, there was one, I can't remember, it was an article or something that said she was really the only one who came out of the Crimean War a winner. I mean, it was such a messy war, but she, you know, she really shone and it really, as we're going to see, it benefited, oh my goodness, it benefited not only the men and the people there, but it's going to just benefit the future of medicine. So, uh, she was called like, uh, so that was the thing, like a lot of the doctors, like Cheryl mentioned, a lot of the male staff, they really resented her. Actually, some of the other nurses, they felt like she kind of favored the Catholics, like the nuns. And so some of the Protestants were like, hey, she's showing favoritism. Whether she really was or not, wait, you know, not, that's not really, that could have just been impressions people had because she was so strong and forthright. Um, but it's interesting because the the people who most appreciated her out there were the men themselves. It said that they would just kiss her shadow as she mm. walked by. She They called her the angel of the Crimea. I mean, and really, you know, for whatever flack she got for being uh, strong, uh, having a strong personality or being authoritative, she worked her tail off. She worked up to 20 hours a day. She really had 
amazing stamina when she was a young woman. Um, some people, I think I read one account that said she could work 22 hours a day. I don't know how long you could keep that up. But I mean, really, she was tireless in her efforts for these soldiers. Okay. And also, she is said to have reduced the death rate of the soldiers. Did you get this? From 40, oh, yeah. 42% to 2%. Insane. That's huge. Yeah. Yes. And so, and and that's the thing, the needs were so great out there. And then, you know, again, there's those pressures coming in that, you know, these doctors and and maybe some of the men and different people that were opposing her, they kind of had to back down because Mm -hmm. it's like, well, she's getting results. I mean, what can we do? Not only that, but it's like, okay, we have to get over our pettiness because people are dying. And so, you know, I will say that there were critics who said, well, as an actual nurse, she wasn't com- like super skilled. Um, she wasn't such an amazing nurse. And, and that's okay, because I'm going to mention in a second what her expertise really was. Um, and there were, of course, men that still died. Of course, they're on a cesspool. What do you expect that's not going to be like <laughs> completely perfect? So you're going to have people that are nitpicky and critical. But whatever the case may be, her administrative skills uh, were really where Florence uh, shined, shone, whatever the word may be. <laughs> and she really improved the lot of the soldiers because of her skills as a mathematician and a statistician. And that's something a lot of people don't realize about Florence, was that, yes, she was a nurse, but her greatest skill was in all of those facts and figures because she was able to imbibe all of this information and and um, well, she knew how much it. she would write back to the government in England and say, "This is how many beds we need. Yep. This is how many sheets we need. Yep. These are the medications we need. These are how many bandages." Like she had the numbers down. Oh my goodness! She knew exactly how much, and she knew how much it would cost, and that's where that mind. Because nursing is more than just tending to the the care; it's also knowing what is needed, assessing the need, yeah. and that's what she was amazing. Absolutely, at. and being far sighted enough mm-hmm. to be able to you know, see, mm-hmm. here's going to be the outcome if we don't deal with these things. And so, uh, yeah, this was where she really started to see as she's looking at death rates and figures and things, that connection between sanitation and survival, you know, mm-hmm. what was really going to help the men. So it's all, you know, those dots are getting connected. Like Cheryl was saying with Dr. Lister, um, you know, people were starting to make these connections like, oh, there's actual practical results to what they're doing. And so maybe we do need to clean up better. Mm-hmm. And Another so. thing she did was to make the medical staff take rest. Mm. And she, even if would, she didn't rest she herself, would, right? She would take over for the doctors and yeah. say, "You go get rest," because she realized that the medical staff was overworked, mm. and she recognized that the doctors are getting sick. So she's making them take a break too, which again is part of her uh, organizational yes. skills yeah. to allow breaks for the doctors to sleep and to recuperate, so they could come back stronger and better to yeah. serve the needs. So practical. These were all very practical steps, and just those. Things, again, that are so obvious to us that were not obvious back then at all. They're completely unknown. And so this was all revolutionary. Um, And so it's cool because, you know, how I mentioned uh, there was that article that said she was the only winner um, in the war. Sir John McNeil wrote to her and said, to you more than to any other man or woman alive will henceforth be due the welfare and efficiency of the British Army. Because even after the war, you know, she did a lot of writing um, and 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 presented reports, you know, to parliament and stuff on behalf of the soldiers and making sure they didn't get pay cuts when they really deserve to be, you know, getting paid their full wages, like random things like that, like other aspects of their well-being besides just uh, their medical needs. And so uh, it's neat because after the war, the fact that she had been immortalized as the lady with the lamp 
Uh, and by the way, that was from a Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem. There was a, a poem that talked about a lady with a lamp. And he got it because he read an her. article on her. Ah. And they had, in the, they had referred to how she would go through checking on the patients yes, with yes. a lamp. And so he took it. Do you have that poem? I've got it. You have the whole poem? No, just the oh. stanza. Do yeah, you have go ahead and read the stanza. No, no, no. Go for it. Lo, in that it. house of misery, a lady with a lamp I see pass through the glimmery gloom and flit from room to room. That's her. I love it. Yes. Yeah. And that became, I'm glad you wrote that down because I read it and forgot to write it. <laughs> All of this, you know, gives her kind of a, an image that is really going to, you know, pave the way for a lot of reforms. It gave her what we would now call street cred mm -hmm. <laughs> after the war. So she was able to come back because she'd become kind of the poster child for medical care and, um, you know, saving people's lives in the war, she was able to then lobby for a lot of care and sanitation. And also what people don't realize about Florence Nightingale is she was a prolific writer and a yes, good writer. Very. And so she kept a journal. Mm -hmm. She kept a journal of all her work during the Crimean War, which was later published yeah. and used. And it helped so much, all her observations with nursing. But when she came back, this is about the time she meets Elizabeth Blackwell, when she comes back from the Crimean War. And Elizabeth Blackwell is a doctor, and she's in the United States at the time she's practicing in New York. And she is bemoaning the fact that there aren't enough nurses and how they right. need to train nurses. And she and Florence Nightingale began to talk and just get excited about how they would see this vision of training women for nursing come to life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. And it's kind of interesting. She and Elizabeth Blackwell, actually, I was telling Cheryl before uh, the podcast, I didn't realize that they pretty much had the same lifespans. Yes. So they lived almost exactly the same time and were kind of going through this together in, That's uh, right. as a parallel. And Elizabeth Blackwell was born in Bristol and then moved to uh, the United States ah. and always felt more like an English person mm -hmm. than an American. So mm -hmm. she fit right at home in England and was when she was introduced to Florence Nightingale. I love it. They had an affinity there. Mm-hmm. Immediate. And yes, that's so great. Another person that uh, Florence really connected with, believe it or not, was Queen Victoria herself. Remember, she met Queen Victoria when she was coming out as a socialite in, in you know, early in her early years. Well, you know, later on now she's going to have a much more meaningful connection to Queen Victoria because uh, Victoria and Albert. Uh, actually spent a lot of time with Florence discussing medical reform. Queen Victoria really cared uh, about some of those things. Uh, well, she was Albert the first, as well. She's the first woman to be anesthetized having a baby. Oh, wow. So she was very, very into, revolutionary. Right, very. So, yeah, open to those kinds of things. And so uh, Victoria actually presented Florence with what she called the Nightingale Jewel on a brooch. I mean, just named after her. So there was a real esteem there. And they became friends. And apparently they met even informally and spent time together. So a really remarkable connection there um, with Victoria. And I do really like that about Victoria and Albert. They, they did. They cared about you know, the needs of the population, maybe a little bit more. They weren't so aloof to those kinds of things. So Florence, you know, she's being thrust into the limelight after the war, obviously. Like I said, she became kind of this poster child for, you know, improving medicine and saving soldiers' lives and all that sort of a thing. But she was a reluctant celebrity. Um, she's, you know, like I said, she's honored in poetry by Longfellow, songs, all these songs written about her, plays about Florence Nightingale. I mean, all of this stuff... Um, but she really wasn't into all of the limelight. She just gets thrust into this. She's considered the ideal Victorian, a symbol of morality, hard work, industry, and courage. 
also very patriotic and feminine and modest, <laughs> but also very intelligent. It's like she could do no wrong. And yet, you know, she didn't care about the fame. The only reason why she was grateful for this was because she saw that it gave her a platform. Like, well, at least people will listen what I, to what I have to say. And so this is where she began all of that prolific writing. Amazing for a woman who had uh, weak wrists and didn't learn to write till she was 12 years old. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, she also wrote Notes on Nursing, yeah. which was like the nursing manual for all the nurses. Yep. And um, so much of her knowledge and her understanding came from that experience during the Crimean War. Absolutely. That and, was big. And of course, she started these nursing colleges. And she trained mm -hmm. this one woman who then went to the United States and began to train other nurses. So yeah. she her vision for nursing was not it was not, not limited. limited, right? Yeah. Yeah, it expanded out. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a gal we're going to be talking about later who uh you know, brought nursing over to Belgium. And so, uh, yeah, you start seeing it spread out from here after Florence. And so uh, in eight, kind of like, uh, as Cheryl mentioned there with the nursing report, um, in 1858, that's when she made her first, or when she published her first account of the Crimean War with an analysis, reform suggestions. And then she started, you know, including, again, those uh, nursing papers on, and, and suggestions. And this was where she really started to become prolific. She published multiple works on nursing. A lot of them were, you know, government documents with facts and statistics. Again, that was very much her strong suit. Uh, all the way up through 1876. So for almost 20 years, she's publishing all of these writings. She also had some lesser known works, um, including writings on her calling and on her faith, um, as well as the Bible. It's interesting. She made a lot of uh, annotations on the King James Bible. I was trying to find them, and I think you probably have to buy that kind of, it's like one of those obscure documents that's hard to find. But, you know, there were, she, she spent a lot of time in the Bible, you know, as much as, again, she kind of had a smattering of all kinds of denominations and background and interesting things in her background. Uh, there was a, a grounding there. And so uh, in 1860, that's when she, that's the year she actually helped found the Nightingale Training School for Nurses. And uh, that really elevated nursing and made it that respectable, qualified profession. And then again, as Cheryl mentioned, there was a gal who brought that over to the United States. Linda Richards. Oh, you found her. Yes, Linda Richards. Linda Richards. Right. And then we're going to see uh, Edith Cavell, who um, brought nursing respectability in Belgium. So these women start going out from there, from London, and uh, bringing their skills elsewhere. So um, the interesting thing, and I didn't even realize this, was that Florence uh, contracted, while she was in the Crimean War, she had contracted bacterial infection that they just called Crimean fever because they didn't know what it was. Um, and so by the time she was only 38 years old, she was already starting to experience such uh, bad symptoms and, and, and so many issues from this illness that she was bedridden a lot. She would find herself bedridden all the time. Almost sounds a little bit like a malarial kind of a thing where it just kept recurring, you know, that just can, those things that just keep coming back. And some biographers also think she suffered from uh, PTSD. That was a lot more common than we realized because nobody knew what it was at the time. You just kind of thought these soldiers should come back and just jump back into society. And so many times they couldn't uh, process all that they had seen and gone through, most of them wouldn't talk about it because it would just get, you know, they would just suppress it and have nightmares and stuff like that. Uh, and so, again, we don't have a lot of documentation on it, but based on her behavior, a lot of people think she probably had PTSD, not surprisingly, um, because she never really talked specifically about her war experiences other than here's all the information and the statistics to improve nursing and um, medical care on the battlefield and all that sort of a thing. Um, she declined a lot of public appearances. 
Um, she actually never worked directly in nursing again, which is another kind of interesting note. She never actually went out and, and just went hands-on like that. Instead, she uh, kind of, you know, I guess separated herself from it a little bit and became just an advocate. And then she'd do a lot of, again, writing, writing. and speaking. Mm -hmm. That was more where she had her influence as as And pressuring. And sorry? She, and pressuring. Right. She, pressuring. She, she wrote letters to, she was an activist. Mm -hmm. She was a mm -hmm. nursing activist. So. And she was always recruiting and pushing women into the nursing field. She mm -hmm. was, again, she had to change the perception of nursing for everybody in England. So, I mean, she was changing their minds, thinking that nursing was the lowest. Yeah. Uh, profession you could have to being an honored, exalted profession. She did it first with her, her example, but then when she became bedridden, she began to do it with her articles and her letters mm -hmm. and, you know, um, trying to change the public perception of nursing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's neat. You know, that that's, that's okay. It's, you know, she didn't have to like, just get right back out there and you know, she didn't have to be, like, in the hospitals constantly. She found her niche that she was able to operate in at that stage of life because she just physically couldn't do it anymore. But she found a way to stay active. You know, we've seen that with a lot of women that, you know, even women that became invalids and things like that, how the Lord used their writing um, as a way of expressing and making a difference. And so that's really what happened. It's kind of a, a I think, a little-known fact about her is that really from her 40s on, she wasn't really in the nursing field. Yeah, in the field. Mm -hmm. um, it's also believed that she began to suffer from some kind of degenerative brain disease. We're not sure what that was because, again, they're still trying to discover and figure these things out back then. But she started to have increasing problems uh, as time went on. By the time she was in her 40s, mid-late 40s, she would need help walking. Mm. She actually struggled with concentration. But, of course, you know, she kept writing. She was still a prolific author. It just took her longer to put these things together. And I, I love how she pushed through you know, in order she, to keep making She difference. also would speak when she mm. was able and fundraise mm. yeah. for uh, the nurses' hospital. And again, most of the women who were recruited to be nurses could not afford the tuition. Mm -hmm. So she would do fundraising. Mm, uh, Elizabeth Blackwell also did fundraising um, to raise money for hospitals and for nurses' training schools and for the nurses themselves mm. to be able to afford the training, mm. the, the, you know. Yeah. So practical. Yes. I, I love that. Yes. I love that, considering yes. all the angles. <laughs> yes. And then in 1883, she received, she was the first recipient of the Royal Red Cross. Ooh. So we always hear about the Red Cross, but she was actually, in fact, some people even consider her one of the founders of the Red Cross. With Clara Barton. Right. Kind of, yeah. But okay. she was the first recipient of the Royal Red Cross. So, I mean, so cool. like she was actually, you know, was doing the work that the Red Cross would become famous for. Yes, absolutely. Exa embodying what mm -hmm. that would become. I love that. In 1904, she was appointed to the Lady of Grace of the Order of St. John. These are all like honors mm -hmm. she got. In 1907, she became the first woman to be awarded the Order of Merit. The next year, following that, 1908, she was given the Honorary Freedom of the City of London. Hmm. Um award or honor. What's interesting about her too is that she's not a suffragette. She was not into women's liberation. Right. She wanted to be a woman. And I think, you know, sometimes the suffragettes were like, give us a man's rights. And she said, no, give me a woman's rights. Yeah. I want to be a woman and have rights. In my, yeah, exactly. As, as I am. As I am. Yes. Which exactly. I really, really liked. I mean, she was feminine. 
Yeah. Everyone who met her said she was very feminine mm-hmm. and yet very strong. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Kind of neat. I like that. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, we do think that, think, oh, she was so just this strong, authoritative woman. But like Cheryl said, she was a woman. She was just, a, and she was just a normal person. Apart from that public image, you know, that is painted of her as courageous, confident, intelligent, a reformer, and so strong. But when you look, at, you know, behind the scenes a little bit, we find that she was in many ways she was just like anybody else. I mean, remember Elizabeth Fry and all of her foibles, her anxieties and weaknesses, struggles with depression. You know, Florence was just a person and she had fears and struggles and anxieties as well. She really, you know, for a long time dealt, had to deal with the fact that she was letting her family down by going into this profession and they didn't approve of what she did. I mentioned she and her sister were very close. Yes. Uh, they were just such different people. And so always having to deal with that tension a little bit. And being such a trailblazer, um, it her, came with its burdens. Right. Her two closest friends, though, were a sister uh, was a nun, Sister Mary Claire Moore that, in Ireland. Course. Yes, <laughs> and the other one was um, uh, her most beloved friend was Mary Clark, who was an English woman she had met in Paris in 1837. But these two women, she kept correspondence with all her life, mm, which I is love that. which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Now mm. I had read, but I couldn't find anything on it. How she wasn't she wasn't a large woman. She was diminutive. Yeah, and she I, was pretty small. I can't remember her size, but I think it was five foot three, was it? <laughs> she was pretty short, And she yeah. wasn't, she was very thin, too, very slender. Very Everyone talked about how yes. slender she was. Yes, she was. Yeah, she was a little wisp of a, of a thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> as they would say. Now, uh, and I will say, again, but remember, she also, she had physical weakness. And so all mm-hmm. of these things. And uh, so she was, like I said, normal. She struggled. She had weaknesses. Apparently, she wrote out a lot of prayers of desperation mm. in difficult times. She mm-hmm. once said, there's no part of my life upon which I can look back without pain. So there was honesty. You know, if you get into her writings, she never thought I was. Just, she was just some, you know, beacon of, of, of virtue and strength. Uh, she really was very human. But through it all, she found joy in walking in the call God placed on her life. There's such an emphasis in her life and in her writings on calling because she felt that so strongly from God. And she said, it is such a blessing to have been called, however unworthy, to be the handmaid of the Lord. And then another time she wrote, to be a fellow worker with God is the highest inspiration of which we can conceive man capable. And she went on and asked, like, how can we, you know, pursue that if we don't know what that calling is? So she was calling her readers to consider and to go to God and say, what is your calling for me? To find that thing that, you know, you delight in and that the Lord has given you a passion for and to walk in it. And and that was something that was a, a really big thing for her. So Florence died uh, at the age of 90, and International Nurses Day is celebrated on her birthday, which May is, 12th. Which is amazing which is that fun. she died at 90 when you realize from 40 on, she Golly. struggled yes. with, yeah. with illnesses and other yes, things. Yes, and so many things, exactly. And and, and we're going to see, you know, in some of the influences she had uh, on, on others. We've already kind of touched on some of this. Uh, I did want to just mention, because we have a couple minutes here, there was one gal uh, that, that she worked with uh, that uh, I, that I thought, well, I'll just connect her here just so that we can see another person specifically, kind of like those friends of hers that Cheryl mentioned. There was a gal named Agnes Elizabeth Jones, and she grew up in an Irish military family. And uh, when she was little, her dad was stationed on the island of Mauritius. And so she saw a lot of refugees there. 
And from the age of seven, it really gave her a heart to do mission work among them. So she had a really compassionate heart. And so it's kind of fun. I just like this connection here. This is why I wanted to mention her. In 1853, she was on a family tour. This is kind of like what Florence Nightingale did, you know, traveling. And she goes and spends a week at, guess where? The Kaisersworth Deaconess Institute. So she goes to the same place Florence is around the same time. And that really gave her a sense of that direction and calling. And she said, to hold ourselves ever in readiness to serve God, to think nothing too small, and so we shall be ready for greater works and further submission if he sets fit to call us to any great work. Enable me to grow in the knowledge of what it may help others, but above all, in the knowledge of thee, my Savior, from whom comes the will to work for thee. And so that's when she gave her all to Jesus for his service. And she became a Nightingale probationer. That's what she was called at St. Thomas Hospital in London. And, uh, you know, serving in that, you know, after Florence had uh, paved the way, she comes in and really brought the Lord into everything she did. She started a Bible study for the nurses. She was a superintendent in a couple different hospitals. And she was in the first staff of Nightingale nurses at the Liverpool workhouses. I mean, the workhouses were gnarly. We're going to get more into that with a different gal. And, you know, she was just so, but she gave Bible classes and I love it. She just had such a hands-on ministry like Florence. And so when she died, Florence Nightingale said of her, because there was such a sweet relationship there, the light with which the loving Agnes was enlightened directed her to duty, not to selfish ease, personal comforts or pleasures, and doing the duty her heavenly father remembered her with blessings that filled her with divine love and converted a workhouse into the very gate of heaven. So you see Florence's appreciation for the work of God through the women that she poured into. And there was another story about Florence um, dealing with a prostitute who was dying mm. and the prostitute thought she was going to hell. Mm. And Florence said, oh my girl, are you not n- now more merciful than the God you think you're going to? Yet the real God is far more merciful than any human creature ever mm. was or can ever imagine. And they said that she had a genuine, intense devotion to Christ. Mm. Um, even though she thought some other religions had merit, that was probably her Unitarian sure. background. Yeah, yeah. She was strongly opposed to the discrimination she saw against Christians of different mm-hmm. denominations. Yeah. So this is a woman worth knowing. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks definitely. for joining us. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.